In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Diet Starts Tomorrow with host Aileen Drexler. I'm having a relationship with my pizza. In a world where wellness looks perfect on Instagram. Just doing my workout. Tuesday's arms and back. But feels anything but in real life. Is butter a carb? Yes. This is the podcast exploring the emotional side of well-being. I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. From people who understand the struggle. I am on the third day of my cleanse diet. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm your host, Aileen. Before we introduce our amazing guest, I'm so excited, guys, to speak to our guest today. But before I do, I want to remind you that your support means the world to me, the DST team. It's not just me here. We have an amazing team that works on our outlines, that does the research, that gets our guests, that, you know, everything. So, a few things that I would like to point you to, which is our reviews. I keep talking about reviews, but please just leave one. It takes you five seconds and it makes such a difference for our show. And then DM me that you wrote a review. I will answer you. I love reading your DMs. I love the community, as you guys know. And go shop our DSD merch shop, Betches. We are going to be coming out with a lot more stuff. Please send me any ideas. You can DM me any ideas of clothes or accessories that you would love to see us make for the DST communities. There's a health and wellness crew. I live in our shop at just sweatshirts and we have so many more coming out this year. I'm very pumped. And again, reminder, DST back for seconds. Sammy is back with me two times a month bonus episodes. Don't forget to subscribe. You can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Remember, Spotify is on a different page it's a different feed. Apple is on the same feed and you get ad-free listening to extra episodes and it's the best. So all that said, I am so excited to introduce our guest, Danielle Friedman. She's an award-winning journalist who specializes in telling stories at the intersection of health, sexuality, and culture. And in January, Danielle published a book called Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Danielle. I'm very excited to talk to you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. We talk about working out all the time, mm -hmm. and I am excited to talk about the history of fitness mm -hmm. and women's fitness and how far it's come and how it affects us, how it affects women in general and how it affects our lives. So I'm excited to talk about it. But first, before I do, can you tell me a little bit about your background and like what ultimately led you to write about this topic? Yes. So I have been telling stories about various aspects of women's health for my entire career for almost uh, 15 years. And before this book, I had, I had really focused more on reproductive health, issues involving motherhood and pregnancy, fertility, sexual health. And while I am a lifelong runner and a 
appreciator of fitness in my private life, I hadn't really fused those interests uh, professionally. But the book really began about five years ago when I was getting ready for my wedding and I decided to take my first bar class. I loved how bar made me feel. I had never sort of felt that strong on a full body level. And I was also very sort of amused and intrigued by the fact that so many of the moves in class felt kind of sexual in nature. You know, the tucks and the tilts and the pelvic thrusting at the end, um, if you're taking pure bar. And at the time, I thought, I wonder if bar actually has a positive impact on women's sexual health. And I thought maybe I would write an article about that. So I started investigating and I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, who is the woman who invented bar in the late 1950s and was this incredibly sort of eccentric, complicated, larger than life figure. She was very much ahead of her time when it came to women and sex. She was famously in an open marriage and would talk about her affairs while she taught, and she wanted her workout. She explicitly created it in part to help women improve their sex lives and connect with their physicality. So I was just sort of blown away by this origin story, especially because bar today can feel kind of sterile, in in my opinion, and and prim compared to, you know, where it started. I, I pitched that story to New York Magazine's The Cut, And while I was reporting it, I was like, I would love to talk to the person who wrote the book about the history of women's fitness to contextualize this. And I was really shocked to discover that that book didn't exist. So it was really like a light bulb moment because it it struck me immediately, you know, as, as an important story that needed to be told. And after just a little bit more research too, I discovered that for every major fitness movement of the 20th century, there was sort of at least one Lottie Burke-like figure behind it. So, you know, between the fact that it hadn't been told and the richness and my personal interest, it was just, I was just like, I have, I have to write this book. And I have been working, I have been researching this topic ever since. First of all, I read a lot about Lottie Burke too, like Mm. in learning about all of this. And it's so interesting also how far bar has gone from there. Like nobody really, it's almost weird to talk about sex now in bar class. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but there, there's actually like a growing number of bar instructor instructors who are kind of trying to resurrect the original Lottie Burke technique. Mm-hmm. both here and in the UK, because in recent years, she's become this folk hero among one part of the fitness community. So there, there's a group that's trying to like reinfuse sexuality, well, I should say sensuality, and that mm-hmm. kind of more like less gym-like culture, more, I guess, almost more of a dance-like vibe in bar. It's kind of interesting. Right. It's called like pop, right? Pop phys- pop physique. There was Is that pop- one of them. There or yeah. it closed. I think pop physique closed. Yeah, I interviewed the woman who created pop physique for the cut. But yeah, there's disco bar in the UK and the London method, and yeah, they're they're all they're very they're very appealing to me personally. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back. So what was the first time we saw working out? as something that women were doing? Because I read in the Atlantic article mentioning Mm -hmm. that like women were corseted, which restricted their movement. Women were warned that exercise affected reproductive health, Mm -hmm. reproductive health. Mm -hmm. So where did it start? 
Yeah. Well, okay. So it's important for me to clarify that my book begins in the 1950s. Okay. There were there were absolutely periods of of you know physical activity for women before then, and you can trace women's exercise back to you know ancient Greece. Um, (laughs) But the 1950s is really when the contemporary fitness industry, you know, began to emerge. Really, the 19 heading into the 1960s, but the figures sort of rose in the 1950s, the figures who pioneered it. And so I, that's when I chose to you know, begin this story. And I also was really fascinated by that time because as you just alluded to, it was this time of when women moved very little. During World War II, women had taken jobs, you know, gone to work in the factory and were were sort of exerting strength and self-determination in a way that the country hadn't really seen before in in modern times. And then after World War II, they were told, you know, in no uncertain terms to basically leave those jobs so men could return to the workforce and, and to, you know, reclaim their place in the kitchen. And so the 1950s was this time of very strict gender norms when masculinity really meant strength and to a large extent, femininity meant weakness. You know, women were supposed to be, were to defer to men, to be um, Mm -hmm. submissive. So when you think about that landscape and, you know, what it would mean for a woman to like be lifting weights or training for a marathon, it was just unheard of. And the opportunities, especially for running, didn't exist, but also just, just culturally women, it was considered taboo. So in the 1950s, we began to see a handful of pioneers start to challenge that idea. And the woman that I really profile in that era is Bonnie Pruden, who was like a total badass. She was a record-breaking skier and mountain climber, and she was a Broadway dancer, and she was just a very physical, physically active person herself. And there are so many parts to her story, but in the when she became a mother and she had two daughters, she was really appalled by how sort of lame her daughter's PE classes were. They were, there was no, nothing like physical about the the physical education. And so she decided to first sort of take the health and fitness of the nation's children into her hands. And then as she became a celebrity, she was focusing on women's fitness and men's fitness as well. But she became, she had her own TV show. She wrote a book called How to Keep Slender and Fit After 30. And she really began to sell the idea that, you know, women could benefit from becoming strong. And and also, and this is sort of the other side of the coin, that fitness was a surefire path to being attractive and lovely and to holding on to your honeymoon figure. And so, you know, that marriage between fitness and beauty culture goes back pretty much pretty much to the beginning. But but we we I was really interested in exploring its contemporary origins during that period. Right. So I was on your website and I was just kind of going through the decades of Mm -hmm. like the highlights of fitness during Mm -hmm. the decades. So Mm -hmm. we had bar in the 60s and jogging, you wrote, Mm -hmm. in the 70s Mm -hmm. as -hmm. a method of liberation and Mm -hmm. then aerobics Mm -hmm. in the 80s and weight training. Did you see the show physical? Yes. Yes. What did you think of that? Well, so I... 
I actually wrote about it. I wrote a a piece for the Times opinion section. I felt I, could, I had lots of thoughts and feelings about that show. Um, for me, I mean, it was amazing to see this history that I had been studying sort of in isolation yeah, sure. for years, you know, come to life in such a, I thought, you know, brilliant way. And the top line of the piece that I wrote was basically that I was, I was really encouraged to see that era of women's history and women's fitness history taken seriously, you know, because so often when pop culture has covered women's fitness history, it's been sort of like as a joke, it's been with this, you know, mocking sort of frame. Jazzercise. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and there is like plenty to laugh at, you know, and but right. it's not just that. And it can, you know, my whole sort of argument is that it has been and can be viewed as a lens into women's larger state of mind and health and, you know, place in society. So I I was I was very excited about that show. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of reviewers and I they were almost all male, but pointed out that it was sort of hard to watch because of her inner monologue, you know, Sheila Rubin's inner monologue. And I'm like yeah, I'm but sorry. That's try living in, yeah. <laughs> you know. Welcome to reality. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I thought that that, you know, I really applauded Annie Weissman, the showrunner, for portraying such a sort of unvarnished look at what it can be like to be a woman, you know. Yeah, I also thought that it was very interesting to see kind of the history mm -hmm. of aerobics, and, mm -hmm. but it also shined a light on how beauty is connected to it and how yes. thinness yeah. and how it's not actually there there's healthy and then there's also unhealthy there's two sides of it and now i know a lot of language is like strong is the new sexy mm -hmm. but do you think that messaging strong versus like thin is just like a pivot in marketing is it just like swapping one physical ideal for another or do you think it's actually empowering i think it's both you know i mean i think on one hand it is absolutely a way to sort of, it is being used as a way to commodify feminism. I think the marketers and advertisers out there recognize that it was no longer acceptable, or at least I should say some, because depending on where in the country you are, you, you still will see some of that kind of bikini body language. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, in general, culturally, we, like you said, we've moved away from telling women explicitly in fitness classes to change their bodies. But I think without that sort of incentive, it, it needed to be replaced with something and with some kind of just some kind of incentive for women to show up and to and to want to, to change, basically. So anytime, you know, strength or empowerment is being pitched in the service of making money, you know, I'm a little bit <laughs> skeptical. Right. At the same time, I do think, I mean, I, I personally believe it's important to kind of like acknowledge progress, any progress, where it is, and and then look at how we can continue to kind of evolve from there. So especially after spending years steeped in the, the history of this topic, I do think I'd rather see fitness studios and marketers and advertisers selling strong over thinness and problem areas. But it's just, I think sometimes it just feels like there is a little bit, it's its a hollow, you know, and it's like, you know, a band-aid for some of the more substantial issues that women are actually kind of, that are standing in the way of women actually feeling strong. Right. Right. 
This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, Newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. So speaking of, you know, how you talk about fitness culture and beauty culture and they're hiding inside of each other, you talk mm. about that. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that means and in the context of history, like Jane Fonda and Suzanne Somers and and those characters? Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to the beginning of the story that I tell, so if we go back to the 1950s, 1960s, because selling strength for strength's sake would have sort of been dead on arrival, it never would have been adopted by such a skeptical society and a society that was really wary of women's strength, Bonnie Pruden, Lottie Burke, many of the, most of the pioneers that I write about were sort of savvy in that they sold exercise and strength as a beauty tool. I'm sure not fully appreciating the (laughs) sort of problems that they would be unleashing in in doing Mm -hmm. that. And so we see that, you know, I saw that kind of like conflicted messaging again, throughout throughout the decades. Although for a very long time, it was most women's workouts would be selling weight loss and beauty first and sort of vitality and feeling good second. Even women's running, which was a very kind of subversive, you know, feminist act and show of strength. Many, many women were drawn to it because it was also sold as a way for women to lose weight. So those two ideas were just, you know, were, were always present. And with Jane Fonda, especially, and speaking of the show physical, the Roseburn character, Sheila Rubin was, I don't know, you know, was largely inspired by Jane Fonda's life, which is a lot more I could say there. And so, you know, Jane Fonda has since written about how she struggled with eating disorders for many years. And she, just like the character in physical was a big fan of ballet. And I actually think sort of her relationship with ballet, which gave rise to her workout, really speaks to this issue. So growing up and in her 20s and and 30s, she loved ballet because it was one of the few areas where she felt sort of in control of her body and connected to her body and, and strong. 
at the same time, she was hyper focused on being thin. And so, of course, she also, you know, sought it out because it helped her look the way that she looked. And it's very sad. But when she, you know, right after she gave birth to her first child, she attempted to do ballet in the hospital room and hemorrhaged and had to spend like extra time in the hospital. And so it's that, you know, I, I think it's sort of it's like a, a false binary to, to try to say that exercise for women is good or bad or empowering or disempowering. Or it's, it's both. It's all of those things, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, some of those same messages sort of worked their way into Jane Fonda's workout because she was encouraging women to be strong. But she also was saying kind of, if you want it to count, you have to do it every day. And there's something, I don't know, personally, when I hear that, I feel like I feel overwhelmed, you know, and mm-hmm. a sense of pressure. So my hope, I mean, I just have to add is that, and one of my goals with the book is that by airing out those origins, bringing them to light, looking at how the, you know, beauty imperatives of our culture have been infused into fitness culture, we can sort of consciously work to separate them and harness exercise in a way that is beneficial for mental and emotional and physical health without the, the toxic, you know, more pressured elements to it. Right. Because that really is missing from a lot of the messaging in Mm -hmm. the past. Like only recently are you hearing that exercise is good for your mental health? Mm -hmm. I mean, we weren't really even talking about mental health like until a few years ago. Yeah. Therapy has just become cool. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) How do you think though that has affected adults now? Mm. Like that messaging growing up around it. I mean, because it was a reality. Like, I don't think at the time they knew that the negative effects of that messaging has a long-lasting effect Mm -hmm. of the people that they were speaking to. Right. How do you think that has impacted generations and how do we get out of it Mm -hmm. in a way that our kids, you and I Mm -hmm. both have kids, like so that Mm -hmm. our kids don't Mm -hmm. struggle with body image Mm -hmm. and work out for their mental health? I can't promise I have the answer to that because (laughs) it's, it's a big question and a really important one. But um, I mean, to, to answer the first part about how it's affected us, I think for many, many women, moving our bodies and exercising has been, you know, sort of linked with and weighed down by feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacy. And some of the very feelings that counteract the benefits of exercise, you know, on a fundamental level, when you're exercising to change and not just to change to sort of be a better, happier you, but to become someone else, you know, so to change your body so that it looks like a cultural ideal or an, you know, an Instagram fitfluencer, it's just going to work at odds with, with mental health. That's not a sustainable practice, you know? So, I mean, on a just really simple level, I just think that's that's such a shame because part of what I wanted to reveal, you know, in telling this story was just how, you know, I wanted to really highlight the the opportunities that women have to move and to cultivate strength today that our mothers in some cases or grandmothers or great-grandmothers just frankly did not have. And I am a really passionate, you know, proponent of, of movement. And there is really amazing science into, into the ways that exercise can on a, you know, chemical level affect our mental health. 
And also fitness communities have the potential to increase our sense of sort of social connection and and our sense of community and our sense of pride. And so I obviously hate the idea that those benefits are clouded by this, you know, frankly, patriarchal beauty and diet industry. How do we separate them? (laughs) Well, I do think it is starting, you know, it is starting to happen in some areas. I think that, um, and I write about this in the book, it's very early days, but um, the fact that there is now, largely thanks to social media, you know, more of a two-way conversation when it comes to fitness and women's bodies, you know, it used to be that it was just, you know, women's media and magazines, pop culture, old school fitness influencers sort of telling women how to look and women attempting to follow. And now because the people have more power, thanks to social media, there's really been a pushback to that. And there's, there is slowly a wider array of bodies that are, you know, there's increased, uh, body diversity and representation and our understanding of what fitness looks like is expanding. It's happening very slowly. But as I said before, I do think it's important to acknowledge progress when and where it's happening. And I'm encouraged by the the, the sort of current class of pioneers that are very vocally fighting to create a more equitable, truly beneficial women's fitness culture. I think also just like calling out messaging in diet culture or the fitness industry and marketing, just calling it out where you see it Yes, and training ourselves as consumers Mm -hmm. to recognize when someone's just trying to sell you something totally, or is genuinely giving you advice Mm -hmm. um, because there is so much out there. I recently somehow got sucked into the TikTok (laughs) algorithm, like the fitness algorithm Mm. and boy, is it overwhelming? I cannot get out of it. It's just people sharing transformations. Mm -hmm. And because I probably watched one video accidentally that hooked me. And there's some good stuff in there where it's like talking about consistency and actually women who like gained weight and feel better Mm -hmm. um, by working out Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. showing that you don't actually need to do like buy XYZ to look your best or feel right. your best. Right. But there's definitely a lot of not great stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a slight downside to social media because everybody's an influencer now. Right. Small and large. And that could also have a negative impact. I would say more than a slight downside. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing is that, you know, you can curate who, for the most part, like what you're exposed to, although in your case. Not on I, TikTok. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess on, you. <laughs> on some platforms. But yeah, it, it is like, it can feel so toxic and just can be, it feels like you could so Overwhelming. Quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about at-home workouts and the shift, what the pandemic did to the fitness industry and how does that impact your theories made about women's fitness? Yeah. Well, it's still unfolding to a large extent. Right. The pandemic did lead to the closure of many, many brick and mortar fitness spaces, but it also led to, you know, such a dramatic increase in, in at home and virtual workouts. And for people who have the ability to, you know, subscribe or tune into those workouts, it, it has increased access and, and just exposed people to so many 
more workouts than they had, you know, access to beforehand. This is just one person's anecdotal evidence, but um, a physical therapist I know has told me that business has just been booming during the pandemic because because people were trying new workouts like without the supervision of an expert and just getting injured left and right. So if you do that, be <laughs> careful. But I also think from again just what I've heard anecdotally, you know, the the pandemic has led to this like widespread sort of reevaluation of our priorities and and how we spend our time, and has also changed kind of what the rhythm of our days looks like, and so. I am hearing that many women are just sort of moving away from the super high intensity, you know, high sort of optimization workouts for gentler forms of movement and just appreciating gentler forms of movement more, you know, whether it's taking a refreshing walk <laughs> outside or or doing yoga you know while feeling so burnt out i think we're just you know we are experiencing this cultural burnout with like the great resignation and all of that you know seeking out movement that actually feels good for them and is truly in the service of self-care and not just being sold as self-care right especially because there was really no end in sight and when we were going to see people. Exactly. So you were just kind of sitting there like, okay, I think I should still work out. But now it's this even playing field of like back to basics. Yes. I have whatever I have. Right. And how do I continue to move? I mean, I wasn't really moving for a lot of it. And then I realized that you you sort of need to for your mental health mm-hmm. and how, how it really does impact it. I think also there was an empowering element to – figuring it out at home Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and trying new things and not being embarrassed because going to classes totally felt like you were on a stage. Totally. Yeah. I I had that experience with like 305 Fitness where I, um, (laughs) it had been a long time since I'd been in person. And then during the pandemic, I was like, oh, I can get back into it. Like, in the privacy of my home. And if I need to sit down <laughs> after yeah, it's like so minutes. much less embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or skip the weights part. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Warmer weather is finally back after so many cold months. It's nice to get outside and soak up the sun, but the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat 
throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches, and honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. You talk about also the cyclical trends of apparel. Um, Mm. Can you share about that? Because I'm so intrigued by the way like workout outfits have changed over time. Yeah. I was really interested in I was going to say pulling on that thread as well, but not to make a bad pun, but just following the story that basically women's fashion and women's workout fashion, you know, tells about women's level of physical activity. So as you mentioned, you know, going back to mid 20th century America, when women were were corseted or, or at least wore girdles, in general, it's interesting just to think about how the ways in which women's wardrobes, you know, restricted women's movements. And for exercise, there wasn't, you know, exercise wear at leisure didn't really exist because the women's fitness industry didn't exist at that time. There were, if for women who did partake in the kind of gentle, feminine forms of exercise that that were encouraged, they would either wear like tailored shirts and shorts or leotards made from natural fibers that weren't really ideal for adult women's bodies. And so it wasn't really until the late 1970s that women's workout wear sort of exploded and entered into the modern era. It was in that time when the sports bra was invented. The sports bra was invented in 1977 by initially by a woman who just had discovered jogging and loved everything about it, except for the fact that it made her boobs hurt, you know? painful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she teamed up with two other women to create the first prototype. 
And also during that period, or almost you know at the, around the same time, Lycra was introduced into women's workout wear. The story of Lycra is super fascinating to me. It was invented by the DuPont Chemical Company primarily in the 1950s to create a more comfortable girdle because girdles were just hellish to try to put on. Anything would be more comfortable. And Lycra helped, but it, you know, they were they were still not ideal. And then basically not that long after they debuted Lycra girdles, women began ditching their girdles, sort of as, you know, part of the the women's movement. Lycra then went from being this fiber of, you know, of uh, repression and oppression to, for many women, a fiber of freedom because, you know, workout leotards were then made out of Lycra. And um, while I think, you know, we could debate whether leotards (laughs) were sort of liberating or oppressing for, we could debate that for eternity, for many (laughs) women at the time, stripping it, excuse me, slipping into, that was a, an apt Freudian slip, slipping into a lycra leotard and leggings for the first time really did feel freeing because they felt that support. It, it There was something kind of freeing about being almost naked, you know, in public with their female friends. And, and it felt like rebelling against decades of, of norms around proper dress. And then of course, leotards and lycra workout wear became like the uniform of the 80s. So mm-hmm. I could trace it through to today, but that's really where the major turn. No, let's trace it. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> because like now it's 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 sort of the same. We have these like legging, like these sets that are yeah. leggings and bras. And yeah. it does feel like just a second skin when it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. It is a bit sexualized. <laughs> yeah. So how does that play into the history? So basically heading into the 1980s, I, and I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of cite the history that I explored, you know, for my book, yeah. which I do see as the origins of where we are today. I mean, basically fitness culture that emerged in the 70s, it was very much sort of fueled by the women's movement and Title IX and Billie Jean King and all of the, all of this just feminist energy. In the 1980s, it kind of like jumped the shark. Like it went, it, you know, all of that positive energy, you know, which was also infused with the messaging that women should be forever working on their bodies. In the 80s, it just went to new extremes. And so it was in the 1970s that we saw the first co-ed gyms. And by the 80s, the sort of gym as single scene had really taken off. Gyms went from being these small little places that weren't at all associated with luxury to, you know, these sprawling multiplexes with juice bars and racquetball courts and aerobics mm-hmm. classes. And so anyway, when they when gyms went co-ed and became um, pickup scenes, women began getting decked out to go to the gym and dressing increasingly sexual. Um, there's this amazing New York Times article from the early 80s where I think the headline was something like exercises in style and the reporter interviewed interviewed women at gyms around New York City and like the descriptions of what they were wearing was just unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> um, the leotards also during that period became increasingly high cut and we started to see like thong leotards, 
there's this writer yeah. from the time who I who I um, quote in my book who called who talked about the high intensity crotch, and so like in this Times article, <laughs> they're wearing these leotards with high intensity crotches with like gold necklaces and belts and just you know it was like yeah. to me the outfits did not seem to be like at all about comfort. It was more about that kind of like peacocking, you know. So the sort of sex appeal nature of workout wear never really hasn't really ever gone away. It's gone through many phases since then. By the 90s, the kind of, you know, tights were largely replaced by bike shorts and we saw more separates. The 90s was also when yoga just exploded in America. And so yoga pants um, became a thing. Lululemon and others. Yeah. Yep. Other yoga apparel manufacturers got their start in the late 90s. So yeah, I, I don't think I don't think there's like a a clear cut answer on whether workout wear is is feminist or not or sexualized or not. I do yeah. think it's progress that women compared to 50, 70, maybe even less, you know, years ago are are able to dress themselves in clothes that facilitate movement and for some provide comfort. But, you know, we still don't see the size diversity and inclusiveness that, that you know, I think we need. And yeah, um, yeah for many women, it's it's not a comfortable look. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> I do appreciate the body diversity that we're seeing in a lot of athleisure mm-hmm. or a- athletic companies. But it's like with anything, especially in fitness and the wellness industry, there's a big pro list and a big con list. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and the good thing I think about it is that there are a lot more options that you can mm-hmm. work out mm-hmm. at home where you can be a little bit more comfortable and you don't necessarily have to opt into the leggings and the whatever trend there mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's really important that we're being shown the diversity yes. because okay. like in the show, physical – there was the, the friend, the friend yeah. that was like, this is not for me. Yeah. They're all tiny mm-hmm. and I feel embarrassed to be here. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of more work to do, but I do see your point about the progress that's been made. So one more question, and I might be a loaded one, but we've been sort of talking about feminism and, mm-hmm. and the feminist movement. So how do you connect the two? Like, how do you connect the the pursuit of fitness for women and the feminist movement? Mm-hmm. So going back to mid 20th century America, because that is, you know, where this evolution began for for many, many decades, women really were seen as existing to serve others, to serve husbands or bosses or children. And I was really interested based on just the stories of kind of real women, you know, across the country of how access to fitness and fitness communities began to shift how they thought of themselves. And for women who had been really discouraged from ever moving in a way that made them sweat, or really who were denied opportunities after like childhood to connect with their bodies or to, you know, cultivate strength, Fitness gave them a new perspective on their own potential. I mean, I know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but many, many women describe it that way. 
And I think, you know, if you're someone who has, if you feel like exercise does benefit your your mental health and your overall well-being, I think, you know, you can relate to this idea that strength can lead to strength. So if you feel a greater sense of comfort in your own skin and confidence, then you might be more inclined to ask for what you need or, you know, to carve out more time for yourself. And, you know, the feminist movement is made up of individual women and individual feminists. And if enough individual women sort of feel empowered by incorporating movement into their lives, it it can create social change. You wrote in the book about how like the perception of fitness though changed over time. Like Gloria Steinman in the beginning Mm -hmm. was really anti and then changed her mind. Can you talk about that? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I think for women who identified as feminists and especially feminist leaders like Gloria Steinem, right. they were always skeptical of women's fitness culture. And, and you know, in our bodies ourselves, they, they do take pains to differentiate exercising for strength and, and for yourself versus to meet a, a culturally prescribed, right, ideal. So they had the same, the same hesitations and, you know, that, that I think we have now. But Gloria Steinem was an especially interesting example to me because she herself, she she was skeptical. She also talks about how she had like no opportunities to be, you know, to be physical as a girl. She was taught that women's bodies are there to be looked at, not to be, you know, active sort of participants. And she convinced herself that she sort of hers was a life of the mind, you know, and that's where her, her, that's where she would be most active. But as she began sort of dabbling in fitness, in exercise, she also liked how it made her feel. And then in her case, she actually profiled a woman who is a well-known female bodybuilder in the 1980s and, and being around that level of, of female strength just was sort of revolutionary for her and inspired her to to buy a set of weights. So by the time she was in her 50s, I think it was, she just both appreciated having that physical outlet that she had been denied and um, and just loved the way that it that it made her feel when it was separate from working out to please someone else and to right. meet a certain ideal. Right, right. So what's the big message you want people to take away from your book and when they read Mm -hmm. it? Well, on one level, um, I hope that the book just sort of infuses another level of another layer of meaning into people's workout routines. And working out can sometimes feel just, you know, like a chore or it can lose its uh, appeal. And by understanding the history and the women who came before and the way that it's the way that it's evolved and has progressed, that it will that it will sort of just improve individual readers experience of, of exercise. But also, I mean, I think the really important message is just that fitness has historically been a privilege and and not a right. And while for those who have had the privilege to access it, it has brought some you know, tremendous benefits. We do still have a lot, you know, we have so much work to do when it comes to improving access, expanding our ideas of um, what fitness, who fitness is for, 
and sort of tapping into the potential there because I think there really is a tremendous potential to improve women's just well-being, but we have to there's a lot of work that has to happen in terms of kind of untangling mm-hmm. it from these other forces. Right. What do you think is the future of fitness just in general, not necessarily only for women? Like where do you see it going? Especially now that the pandemic has yeah. turned it upside down. I mean, it it is hard to predict, but um, <laughs> <I have my thoughts. laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, on one level, like the most obvious is probably just the move to to these virtual communities, like the, the Peloton model, all of the at-home models yeah. that have sprung up. I'm interested to see specifically like about how the the community aspect of, of online fitness community communities sort of develops, because I think one of the things that has been really special about workout culture in some parts of the country for many women is is the the you know, the social aspect. I interviewed women who are in their 80s now and they talked about how they've been, you know, dancing with the same women for 40 years and they've experienced life together. It's interesting to see how that will change. But I, I, you know, this is more of a hope than a prediction, but I just, I do hope that the the progress that we're starting to see in terms of the, the models of what fitness can look like and, and again, the conversations about, about what it can offer women when it's, um, when it's when it's sort of marketed in, in a constructive way, I, I think that it feels like we're starting to kind of break that open a little bit. And I would, I would like to see that just continuing. Me too, really. Genuinely hope so too. Mm-hmm. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, let's do DST confessions. The question is, what is like the most boring or like worst workout experience or class that you have ever done? And it doesn't mean doesn't mean that that class sucks for everyone just for you personally. It was just not not your vibe. Yeah. Um I guess I would have to say I'm going back. This is like 
I'm going back into deep into the vault here. But um, <laughs> not long after I moved to New York in the early 2000s, I so I was a member of New York Sports Club, and I remember taking a step aerobics class. So I I was taking cardio dance at the gym, and I loved it. And I was like, all right, I'll I'll like explore a little bit here. And I did step aerobics, and it was so complicated. <laughs> like, it was so <laughs> I, I just remember being like, like everyone else seemed to be totally like moving and sync and like getting it. And I was like, I was like not getting any workout because like, what is going on? And I, and I left because after like 15 minutes, I was like, <laughs> this is both embarrassing and, and not at all. <laughs> I'm not even exercising because yes. so I have to say, I'm not like so sad that stuff aerobics has sort of faded away. That's a good one. I remember working out at New York Sports Club. It was an interesting time. <laughs> yeah. It was really hard for me to choose one for this because I have I have several. Uh-huh. I, I'll just say in general, anytime a yoga class packs their class mm. and so that you are literally just like one inch away from the next person, that is the worst experience you could have. Yeah. I've once kicked someone in the head. <laughs> yeah. I hated that. <laughs> Between like the bodily functions and the like the kicking oh, and the, it's just oh like, my god yeah there's just yeah the smell yeah and I really also do not enjoy and this is a personal preference I know they do well the classes with like the mega reformers mm. and like all of the strings mm-hmm. and the pulling and mm-hmm. I just never felt like no matter how many times I went I never felt like I was doing anything to my body or felt like I was I belonged do yeah. you know what I mean absolutely. So, yeah. It was like a certain culture, I think, which yes. felt a, like old school culture. I agree. I want to add that like one of my favorite fitness experiences is going with my mom to her cardio dance class. I've done that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Zumba. Yeah. This is like a variation. I grew up in Atlanta. And so she, my mom does cardio dance like several times a week at this local suburban studio and called Dance It Off. Um and it's so much fun. I mean, it's like yeah. I can to- I I can keep up. <laughs> and so I can yeah. always it's a great workout. I feel like it's a judgment-free zone and totally. it is it's refreshing, very refreshing compared to what some of the studio, you know, culture is like in in these more elitist pockets in, yes. in New York City. I'm so with you. My mom used to go to like the Zoom class mm-hmm. and she was obsessed with it. it she's, when, when the instructor left or like when they closed it, she was depressed yeah. literally because yeah. it was like the highlight of her. Like she just totally. had so much fun and she took me once and I, I was like so inspired. Like all of the women were there just to move their bodies, yes. have fun because the instructor was like just also like everybody was just there for like the energy. Right. And you feed off of that. You're not there to like look a certain way or be the best. It's mm-hmm. not a competition. It's mm-hmm. really you're there to feel better. Yeah. And, and I think when we talk about fitness culture, it's important to remember that there are studios like that all over the all country, over. you know, totally. and that is many women's experience of it. So yeah, um, those pockets are there. Yes. They might not be like what's, they're not trending. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to look for them, but but they they are there. Right. And it's always also the people, like you said, you talked about community. I think that's really important. Like even though we are moving to a virtual world, the community element, like the in-person and doing something with someone. And then when you go there, you feed off of energy, Yeah, the energy of of others that it really transforms your mood while you're working out. Yes. And has a long lasting effect. It makes you want to go back. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. 
Well, so where can people find your book, follow you on social media? Please share that. Yeah. So my book, Let's Get Physical, is available wherever books are sold. And you can find me on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, on Twitter at dfriedmanwrites, and at danielle-friedman.com. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great episode. Everyone, please go pick up Danielle's book. And Danielle's going to be back for our Thursday DRDST episode, answering all of your questions. And so reminder, send them to dst at betches.com. Follow at Diastarsmar on Instagram. You can follow me at Aileen. And if you like this episode, please write a review. We love you. And we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Stacey Wong, and Jorge Morales-Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Be sure to follow at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com. Betches.